Welcome to the Game Changers Podcast, where we have clinical conversations that impact your pharmacy practice. Let's listen in as our team discusses this week's clinical practice game changer. Hey, CE Plan members. From CE Impact, this is Game Changers. I'm Jen Moulton, and this week we're exploring once-weekly basal insulin in patients with diabetes. Before we get into it today, I just want to call out that we are pivoting a little bit for today's podcast. And I have the distinct pleasure of talking with my colleague, Jeff Wall, who you all obviously know and love. We've been doing this podcast for over three years now, and we hear from so many of you about how appreciative you are for the weekly clinical deep dives and the ability to stay up to date on the most important clinical topics in a quick and easy format. Plus, getting CE is always an added bonus. So I'd like to just take a minute to thank you, Jeff, for all you do for the podcast and for keeping me personally on my toes uh, by digging into these cutting edge updates so I don't have to. (laughs) Um, As a pharmacist, I I really appreciate the time that you save me by doing the heavy lifting and telling me the important aspects of what I need to know. So I just want to take a minute to say thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, no, that we, you know, Jen had come to me uh, several years ago about the idea of doing a podcast. I'd never done one. I did have some professional radio experience about 16 lifetimes ago, and I think that's uh, served me okay in in, in this. Um, I want, I do want to tell our longtime listeners that, you know, yeah, we're, we're changing up the format a little bit, but, you know, the quality, I hope, and the immediacy, you know, when a new study comes out, a new guideline comes out that really is going to affect people at, at, at the at the bedside that we were able to dive right into, that's not going to change. And, and you know, we're, we're, we're going to present things a little bit differently, but, it, you know, I, I hope that the uh, expertise and the, the practicalities of, of uh, new drugs and new studies, new guidelines uh, will be of, of the same level that you've come to be used to and the, and the many people who have contacted me saying they appreciate it. So, yeah, don't think that that, that those things are going to change. In fact, we're doing some of these changes for the better, really. And, and I think uh, we're going to get more uh, guests on board. We're going to do, you know, a whole bunch of stuff. And again, you know, hopefully we'll remain the pharmacotherapy podcast of choice for you. So... Absolutely. I am obviously very biased, but this is my favorite way to get CE. So, <laughs> so I really appreciate it, Jeff. Good. Um, so let's get into today's topic of once weekly basal insulin. Now, obviously we could limit insulin injections for patients with diabetes to once a week. That would be a huge improvement for quality of life. But Jeff, tell me why you think this is an important discussion right now. I, you know, there's a couple of reasons. One, um, and again, shameless plug, I know next week we are doing a complete ADA uh, guideline update. And so we, I kind of felt like, and I think Jen felt like this would be a, a good uh, lead into that. Uh, but the bottom line is that is that uh, this is, you know, uh, we have two of these that are going to be competing for the market. The one we're going to talk about, um, IODEC, is probably going to be on the market late this spring. And the fact that it, it is a, com- you know, a completely different way to give insulin with this, I mean, it is once a week, and that's how it was done in the studies. Um, I think has the ability to really kind of change up how we deal with with uh, using insulin, um, and we'll kind of dive into that a little bit more. But um, I think I think a lot of the other quote unquote so long uh, so so termed long acting insulins like the Glutec, you know, we were told oh it's thirty six hour, forty eight hour. In the end, almost everybody on that drug is on it daily. Um, but this is a, a study where they truly gave the drug once a week, and and we'll talk about what they found in in, in the site we're reviewing. 
Awesome. Well, I will let you, as the expert, get into it. <laughs> Thank you. Passing it over it. to you. Yeah, we'll do. So, you know, again, we're you know we're 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 going to kind of lead into uh, the 2024 uh, ADA uh, guideline updates coming up next week. You know, certainly anyone who practices uh, in in with diabetic patients knows that that the whole landscape of treatment of diabetes has gone completely on its head in the last you know ten years. I don't think my younger me at ten years would have realized you know how powerful drugs like SGL two drugs and certainly the GLP drugs you know have have really just completely and utterly changed the landscape of type two diabetes. You know, it's worth noting that you know in 2010, 2011, you know we were still putting and and we still have patients on this, but we were still putting a lot of people on metformin and sulfonylureas. That was kind of the first treatments of choice. Um, and, and, and it's just, yeah, it's amazing to me how, how the landscape has really changed. Insulin, of course, is, is used in many type 2 diabetic patients uh, as their disease progresses and they start to make less and less of their own insulin. And so I, I'm not sure insulin is ever going to completely go away um, for type 2 diabetes, but it's still going to be an important therapy. But as we all know, um, you know, it, it has inherent risks to it. It certainly is more likely to cause hypoglycemia than just about anything except the sulfonylureas. We know that uh, cost is a huge issue, though I think uh, thankfully we're starting to see some relief uh, legislatively in that area for which I I think everybody's grateful. And then the other thing that we always deal with in a clinical situation is that weight gain is actually very common when people start insulin. And so, you know, especially with type 2 diabetics, the, the exact last thing we want to do is going to happen. And so there's actually several studies now looking at the combination of insulin and semiglutide, the evidence for that is actually very strong. Um, you know, if they find dramatic drops in hemoglobin A1C and even a, a net weight loss. So that, that's kind of interesting as well. But, you know, getting back to what we're talking about here, you know, you know, again, you know, I remember when glargine first came out and I think for people who are too young to remember, uh, you know, glargine really, you know, completely changed how, how we tr treated diabetes. And it's, it's hard to under, uh, underestimate or, or under emphasize that because before then it was very common to give, you know, uh, NPH insulin two or three times a day, three or four times of uh, bolus insulin with foods and people were checking their blood sugars, you know, five times a day, you know, and all this other stuff. It just, it was, it was complex. It was associated with a lot of hypoglycemia. Um, and then glargine came on the market, which was, and and still is, in my opinion, the the best drug that that mimics what the body does for basal insulin release, and a lot of that stuff just kind of went away. And so, you know, the, they have really become the gold standard over the last fifteen years for for the treatment of type one diabetes and in late stage type two diabetes. But they are daily injections, and I think. I always tell my students that that I think a lot of the other insulins that have come out to this date have really not, you know, significantly improved on glargine and, and uh, the way it works. But we now may have 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 a, a, a change to that. And so insulin Icodec um, is one of two of these once weekly insulins that's in late phase to the, to the clinical development. Again, the studies have largely been done. I believe they're going to do their NDA review, I think, next month. So it actually may become available again, probably late spring if everything goes okay. Why does Icodec have an unbelievably long half-life? It's because, like all insulins, they've done some amino acid substitutions and kind of switch things around a little bit in the amino acid chain, and that changes the kinetics of the drug. In this case, they actually added something. They actually added 
a, a, a fatty acid chain to the, the insulin amino acid chain that allows the molecule to bind reversibly to albumin. And that dramatically, dramatically prolongs the half-life to 196 hours, about seven days again. And because it's a very long uh, half-life drug, it does take a few weeks to get to, to steady state. So, you know, the, even though this is another, you know, recombinant insulin that they've made some adjustments on, this is unique in that they've added a fatty acid chain, which allows it to be, to be bound to, to albumin. A good question to ask is in patients who are hypoalbuminemic, will you have a more sensitive response to that? I am unaware that 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 has been studied. Uh, I looked around for that in, in, in the prep for this, but I have not seen that. So that'll be interesting to see if, if more data comes out on that. So there's been a number of studies that have looked at both of these uh, long-acting insulins. Again, we're going to fo focus mostly on, on, on ICODEC here. The uh, clinical trial series that got uh, everyone kind of interested in ICODEC was the Onward series of studies, which like all diabetic studies, they usually do a series of five or six studies, you know, some short-term, some long-term, some with metformin, some without. I mean, you can go on and on and on, but the onward set of studies are the studies that have, have really looked at uh, the use of, of ICODEC in, in this once-weekly fashion. With those kind of studies, some long, some short, some of the different comparators, it was inevitable that someone would do a meta-analysis about that, and that's actually what we're going to take a look today about. So there was a, just recently, in the last three weeks, a large meta-analysis that combined the evidence of the onward series of studies with actually the the uh, um, series of studies with the other uh, uh, long-acting insulin, once weekly insulin that's on the market as well, um, and so so kind of bringing all that data together to see what they can find. This again, was a pretty much standard meta-analysis. It did follow the, the uh, um, registry that most meta-analysis are supposed to be put in called the PROSPER registry. And, and the, this is done because it makes sure there's a standard way of collecting and reviewing the data in a meta-analysis and allows um, them to follow kind of a standardized approach to pulling studies, reading studies, and then adding it into the model for, for the meta-analysis. They basically uh, wanted only randomized control trials. So they, they basically only included published randomized control trials. They did not look at, at, at retrospective studies. They did not look at anything else, basically. So uh, really, you know, they say that that if, if you have it, you have a meta-analysis of well-done randomized control trials, that it even beats RCTs as, as a way to assess evidence. Uh, that's always been a controversial notion that I'm not going to not get on that fence about. But in this case, again, they pulled all randomized control trials with both the long-acting ones, weekly insulins. That Again, the population that they looked at in all these studies, as you might imagine, had very similar inclusion-exclusion criteria. So I had to be over age 18. They had to be diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And I specifically was, was glad to see this uh, meta-analysis done because it did focus on type 2 diabetes. Certainly, uh, patients with type 1 diabetes uh, are all on insulin, of course, but I think trying to mix those with patients with type 2 diabetes would, would make the, the interpretation of such a meta-analysis extremely difficult. So that I was I was glad to see that we're really only focusing on these once-weekly insulins in patients with type 2 diabetes. Again, they uh, looked at studies that looked at insulin, ICODEC, and then the other insulin is uh, alpha-stora insulin, alpha 
I think in the next 10 years uh, that drugs are going to be so unbelievably complex to say that we're just going to kind of, you know, have AI, you know, basically repeat the the words to us because we're not going to be able to actually pronounce them anymore. But anyway, uh, insulin Epsidora, also insulin Icodec, which again is what the one that's almost certainly going to get on the market first and the one I really wanted to, to focus on basically. They did not limit type, dose, duration of the study. They didn't do any of that other stuff. Um, they did assess um, other treatment groups, whether they were placebo, whether they were, uh, you know, against insulin glargine, et cetera, et cetera. And they did want to focus on on active control studies. So uh, almost all of the studies had uh, either one daily insulins, including insulin glargine, insulin deglutec, as their comparator arm. So, so basically, we've collected a whole bunch of studies. They're all randomized control studies. They're all type 2 diabetics. And almost all of them have a, a, a direct active comparator arm. The primary outcome in this uh, meta-analysis was patients who uh, uh, received, uh, developed an A1C below 7%, so a proportion of patients who basically got their hemoglobin A1C at goal. One thing I'm very concerned about, and I suspect most uh, uh, people out there are really concerned about, is safety outcomes, right? You know, I'm going to give you a dose of once weekly insulin, and then tomorrow you decide to go on a fast for whatever reason, or tomorrow you decide that you're going to, you know, start training for a marathon or, or you know, whatever reason. And and so I I think if I I don't think anybody really is concerned about efficacy with these drugs, but but safety I think I think is is a big deal. And so uh, they had important secondary safety outcomes, including a variety of of hypo glycemic levels. Uh, they look at just the number of alerts, the patient's blood glucose monitoring, and, and the vast majority of these patients' studies were given a CGM, so they had continuous blood glucose monitoring. Uh, they also looked at clinically significant hypoglycemia and severe hypoglycemia, which actually required some sort of external use, not just you know taking juice or something, but had to actually be seen by somebody uh, uh, to assess, basically. As I mentioned, they included randomized control studies. They did not include crossover studies. They uh, then, when they had this entire potential pool of studies, they had two independent reviewers, and this is always done in a meta-analysis. They did do a risk of bias tool, again, very, very common, so take a look and, and see which of the uh, of the studies had either the potential for high bias, uh, low bias, or just some concerns. And this, and they also graded the meta-analysis and the results based on the grade methodology, which is, again, the standard way that almost everybody does meta-analyses at this point. The stats in meta-analyses are always complex and I won't, you know, turn, uh, you know, basically put people to sleep, especially if you happen to be on a freeway right now. Uh, suffice it to say that that uh, it was a complex set of, of statistics. I did a little review on it. It made sense to me. Um, uh, they they did do a Markov model where they did multiple, multiple uh, iterations, you know, of the meta-analysis to make sure that the data was basically the same no matter what. And that's, again, that's not uncommon in meta-analytic techniques. And so everything else also to be to be reasonable to me. So they started off with uh, you know looking at PubMed and Embase and all that other stuff. Uh, they uh, ended up with uh, with about 275 uh, studies, and after they excluded everything and and all that other stuff, they ended up with seven studies for uh, review and the meta analysis. They did do some depth of looking at these uh, uh, studies. All of them uh, uh, were once weekly ICADEC, but uh, uh, four of the studies did allow non 
insulin glucose lowering agents, including SGL2 drugs and GLP drugs and, and metformin. So they, you know, they, so four of the studies were, were allowed to do that. Uh, two of the studies were not. They were just straight up once weekly insulin ICODEC. Uh, they only had one study. And again, I think that's why ICODEC is going to hit the market first. They only had one study that met this criteria for the once weekly Estadora um, <laughs> uh, long acting insulin. So again, that's why I didn't really want to focus on that. Comparator arms, again, they managed to pull studies. All seven studies had one comparator arm. Almost all of them, actually five of the seven studies used a glargine, and then two of the uh, uh, seven studies used uh, Diglutec. They did not really go into detail about bolus insulin amounts. So, I mean, I believe, you know, bolus insulins with food was kind of left to the, to the discretion of the, of, of the studies themselves. I pulled a couple of these studies, and they actually did not allow patients to take anything but basal insulin. So I, I, some of that was at the discretion of, of, of the investigators, but I suspect uh, given what they were trying to figure out here, they did not allow routine bolus insulin injections with food. However, they did allow, allow carb counting and adjustments from there. So uh, a duration of the studies when it went, went from anywhere from 16 to 78 weeks. And so again, you know, uh, studies that uh, you know, even go 18 months compared to pretty short, short-term studies that, that are kind of combined this meta-analysis. They had a total of uh, about 3,000 patients. So not, not a bad size uh, for a meta-analysis. Mean age in the study was about uh, 60 years old, a little bit plus or minus there, and then about uh, half and half males. I mean, it slightly skewed a little bit more male, around 60%, but again, for all intents and purposes, about half and half um, uh, males. What did they find in this and what were the results and how can we apply them to this uh, patient population? We will talk about that after a word from our sponsor, CE Impact. Are you a pharmacist by design? Since we hold a vital position on the healthcare team, it is our responsibility to advance our knowledge and skills so we can provide the best possible care to our patients. Being a pharmacist by design means striving to be the best version of ourselves, not just as professionals, but as individuals dedicated to improving patient outcomes. Learn more about pharmacist by design at ceimpact.com. Join us and begin your journey to being the best version of your pharmacist self. So we were back talking about insulin ICODEC and talking about uh, a meta-analysis that kind of tried to bring together the information of looking at long-acting once-weekly insulins on their efficacy and safety. As I mentioned, this meta-analysis contained uh, uh, seven uh, studies, and what they basically found when they took a look at the proportion of, of patients who reached the hemoglobin uh, A1C, they actually noted that uh, once-weekly ICODEC was actually more effective not only to the comparison once-weekly insulin with a, a relative risk of 1.5, so basically you were about 60% more likely to reach a hemoglobin A1C goal of less than 7 with insulin ICODEC compared to once-weekly insulin at Efsidora. Um, but more importantly, uh, they found that it was it was uh, also more effective than both Diglutec and Glargine at, at proportions of patients who received who who got to a hemoglobin A1C of less than um, uh, seven. The Diglutec uh, uh, results were much more strong uh, with an effect size of 1.43, so again, 43% more likely to reach that goal. Whereas the Glargine, actually, interestingly, was less 
at uh, only 15%, so a, a relative risk of 1.15, it just barely made statistical significance as well, which I thought was kind of interesting. But bottom line was that most of these studies were, were non-inferiority studies that they reviewed. And look, putting all the data together, they found that, in fact, once weekly IACODEC was more effective at proportion of patients reaching a hemoglobin A1C of less than 7%. So it's effective, terrific. But what about uh, safety outcomes? And again, this is where I'm. I have to admit, I'm a little bit nervous about that. So I was uh, fairly surprised to read that, in fact, uh, when they looked at the at the secondary safety outcomes, that once weekly insulin icodec was actually associated with a lower incidence of severe hypoglycemia that required outside intervention compared to uh, once daily to Glutec. And the numbers were actually fairly small because, I mean, again, uh, severe hypoglycemia rates are small across the board, but it was, there was a statistically significant decreased risk. Um, and then, but they did not find any difference in uh, decreases of hypoglycemia rates between the other L1 weekly insulin and glargine. And uh, in fact, uh, the glargine, which is the one that, that we would usually uh, compare this to, uh, the 95% confidence interval was 0.03 to 4.8, so a very wide confidence interval, but still statistically no difference. Now, again, I would, I would have a bit of caution with that. Um, you know, overall, severe hypoglycemic rates are rare, uh, really across all insulin studies period. And of course, with the, with the advent of continuous blood glucose monitors, those numbers have plummeted even more. So I'm not, you know, I'm not going to walk away from this meta-analysis going, oh, they're just as safe, if not safer. But I think there's certainly no signal in this meta-analysis that incidences of, of either mild to severe hypoglycemia um, is, is more frequent with once daily ICODEC compared to either the other once weekly regimen or the, the uh, daily regimens that we use, use pretty commonly here. They found uh, um, other side effects pretty similar um, with new insulins. There's always some question about injection site reactions. And again, because this is quite a bit different from some of the other uh, recombinant uh, insulins on the market, I think there was some concern about that, but they actually did not find a, a statistically significant difference in uh, injection site reactions uh, compared to uh, insulin glargine, insulin deglutex, stuff like that. So their conclusions in the study was that uh, based on their meta-analysis meta that uh, in, uh, insulin uh, uh, ICODEC is at least, if not more effective at getting people to a hemoglobin A1C of less than seven. This is true when they broke up the data, whether they were receiving insulin by themselves or more commonly on other medications to also lower their blood sugar. So it seemed to be more effective than both glargine and deglutec at getting people to a, a hemoglobin A1C of less than 7%. So at least if not more effective based on this meta-analysis. And then safety, I think a, a, a more conservative way to uh, approach those results is there was no signal for increased severe hypoglycemia of once daily ICODEC compared to uh, insulins that are already on the market. It's worth noticing, noting that when I was going through the study that and pulled some of the original stuff, that uh, a lot of these, uh, or several of these studies, had patients who entered the study who were already on insulin, and they were already on a long-acting insulin and a you know, twice or three times a day bolus insulin with meals. And in the studies, those couple of studies that I read, they actually did not allow uh, scheduled bolus insulin. They were allowed again to carb count and give themselves some adjustment based on carbs, but routine boluses uh, were not done. I was really hoping this meta-analysis would, would carb those patients out because that would really change things, right? If, if people could literally take once weekly ICODEC and pretty much just 
you know, measure their sugars. And if they get super high, give them a little bit, but not have to routinely take bolus insulin with meals. Again, that would be, that would be pretty incredible. Um, probably more so with type one diabetes than type two diabetes, but very interesting to see. So I, I, I kind of wish they had done that. They may not have had the numbers to do that, but, but, but that's something I, I thought would have been interesting to see. Uh, they note their, themselves, there were some limitations. There was a wide range of, of duration, again, from 16 to 78 weeks that the titration algorithms in the different studies were different. So, you know, starting at X dose and then going up by so many units was different between the, the, the different studies. Um, again, they noted that that while they were uh, randomized control trials, almost none of these were blinded. They'd be, you know, I suppose you could do that. I suppose you could blind uh, somebody by giving them, you know, dummy once weekly uh, insulin and then uh, in one group who were getting glargine, or you could have someone get the ICODEC and get dummy once daily glargine, but that seems to be pretty <laughs> difficult. So I, it doesn't surprise me these would be open label studies. I, you know, I get that that might be a, a, a potential strike, but again, I don't know how you would pull these kind of studies out. So that, that's kind of interesting. And again, they note that that themselves, that, that safety considerations still have to, have to uh, uh, be worried about or concerned about just because of the low numbers in all these studies. Um, I think, you know, phase four type studies will probably be done. That'll probably try and answer that kind of question once and for all. So um, for my analysis, this looked okay. Um, uh, one of the things that really surprised me is that uh, the meta-analysis report did not look at heterogeneity at all. And that's pretty unusual. Almost all meta-analyses nowadays will give you uh, a heterogeneity statistic. Usually the I-squared statistic is what is used. And that helps us get an idea of the differences of, of the studies. And, and it doesn't necessarily mean that the meta-analysis is bad, but you know, a meta-analysis is really kind of garbage in, garbage out. And if you have wildly different studies with wildly different outcomes, with wildly different populations, it is more difficult, I think, to, to pull that data together and meta-analytic technique to find out what was going on. They didn't re report heterogeneity at all, which again, really surprised me. However, I will say that, that considering they used all randomized control studies, most of them with an active control, almost all of them with, with kind of the same inclusion exclusion criteria, if I were to guess, the heterogeneity would be low. But but again, that's a guess on my part because they they really did not did not uh, mention that. Uh, so what are we going to do with this? That's a good question. Like I said, uh, you know, it's supposed to be available late spring, early summer, twenty twenty four. Um, I shudder to think what the cost of this is going to be. You know, like, again, people may go, hey, this is great. Instead of having to inject myself every day, it's every week, so that's much less. So I'll bet you it's cheaper. I will be very surprised if it's cheaper because um, um, that's just not how things go anymore. So it'll be interesting to see how we position this with, with type 2 diabetes especially with the with the advent of the some of the the insulin GOP drugs that are coming out on the market um, you know which theoretically should be as or more effective than regular insulin as well as blunting significantly the weight gain associated with it how is all that going to get positioned in type 1 diabetes which we didn't go here um, I think is going is going to be really interesting to see you know where that rolls as well so my kind of thought was you know again based on costs and and training, I think that in particular, uh, patients who are not very adherent once daily uh, insulin and maybe the the first candidate you want to use from this. Uh, perhaps I'm I'm thinking uh, in in a fantasy land, but you know, is is there a world where a a patient who's on this uh, goes into their pharmacy? And, and basically, you know, they get their blood, blood sugar checked and it's almost like direct observed therapy for, for, for TB <laughs> where they, they get their once week shot and they kind of wave at them and they kind of, they kind of, you know, head out 
hopefully you don't buy a whole bunch of Cheetos and, and Diet Mountain or regular Mountain Dew and, and go to the the, the uh, front and, and ring that up. But <laughs> I'm sure that probably would happen at some point. So, um, and again, you know, but but I think that if I had to pick a, a group of patients that I think might be really good for this, it would be patients who are just straight to be either nidophobic or just, you know, are, are, are basically not adherent. That's, that's kind of what I take away from this. So Jen, I don't know. I, you know, it, you know, if this seems interesting, the promise is certainly there. I admit I'm a bit uh, nihilistic about this, if for no other reason that, you know, since the advent of glargine, we've had about, you know, 10 different new insulins come out. And in all really purposes, they've not really shown any real demonstrable clinical benefit over good old fashioned glargine. And so uh, will this drug really hold true to its promise of, you know, once weekly use, more effectiveness and as safe, I think only time will tell. Oh, thanks, Jeff. Yeah, it's super interesting. I loved your discussion about the safety, um, you know, and I think CGMs have, you know, paved the way for all of this, you know, innovative technology and, you know, really giving you real time data. So um, I think that's great. Feels like, and I don't know if you agree with this, but it feels like for a long time, we didn't have anything in this space for diabetes and nothing was new. Um, and now it feels like it's kind of ramping up. Do you, I mean, do you feel like that? Oh yeah, no, I mean, you know, I think that, that, you know, we went what, I mean, you know, metformin came out in, in the you know, early 1980s and, and I, that's even before my time, I know it's hard to believe, but you know, it, it, it really, you know, that was, I think a, you know, the first time that really it turned the, the treatment of diabetes on its head, you know, and, you know, I, because it not only was safe in most cases, it did a good job of lowering hemoglobin A1C, but there was some evidence of cardiovascular benefit, which no other drug had ever had before. And then you kind of went about 30, you know, 25 years of now a whole lot going on. Glargine came out in the early 2000s with, you know, so you had kind of a 15 year kind of, kind of difference there. And then we had a bit of a lull too. And now again, yeah, everything's exploding with, you know, GOP-1 drugs, SGL-2 drugs, and then the combinations of all these, as well as, you know, the triple G drugs, which are almost certainly going to be on the market and, you know, in the next couple of years, um, the, the combined S, there's also a combined S SGLT1 and SGL2 drug on the market that that will be on the market that they're studying. So yeah, I, you know, uh, we've we're we're attacking diabetes in ways we never thought and of course the technology is 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 keeping up which again I think had lagged behind uh, uh certainly, you know, how long will it be before we have, you know, AI ran pumps which are basically right. connected to, to patients with type one diabetes. They, you know, real time monitor every 10 minutes and, and make, you know, micro amount adjustments to, to, to basal insulin. I mean, at that point for type one diabetes for all intents and purposes, are you cured? You know, so it'll, it'll be interesting to see. Yep. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It'll be, uh, it'd be super interesting couple of years. So just stay on top of it. Yeah, well, absolutely. as always, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. Um, mm -hmm. I so appreciate um, you diving into this and, and pulling out the most important pieces. So I just always learn so much. So thank you. Thank you. Um, and thank you to everyone for joining us every week. If you're a CEM Pact plan member, be sure to claim your credit for this episode by logging in at CEMPact.com. And we will talk to everyone next week. Thanks and have a great week. Jen here. Be sure to check out our education at ceimpact.com. You'll find it to be your one-stop shop for all the CE resources you need. Become a Pharmacist by Design member today to access it all for free, including CE for this podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week on Game Changers Clinical Conversations.